there seems to be a flippancy about the dignity of others. Oh, vaccine injured people. Oh, well, we'll, we'll censor them, keep them out of the limelight. Today, sit down with Thomas Harrington, a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute and author of the new book, The Treason of Experts, COVID and the Credentialed Class. We've become infantilized where we allow these experts to say, don't go near that because it might not be good for you. So many of us accepted this and said, okay, thank you very much for warning me off because I might not have been able to handle it. What kind of citizenry is this? This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Yanya Kellick. Tom Harrington, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Very nice to be here, Jan. Tom, I've been reading your book, The Treason of Experts, COVID and the Credentialed Class. The treason of experts, you know, I've been thinking about all sorts of problems with experts um, over the past while. In fact, the thing that struck me, and I've been commenting on this over the last few years, is if there was ever a reason to not trust the experts, we have seen, you know, in ample detail in almost every area, why you should not just trust the experts. So what, what is your book about? <laughs> the book is about looking at, at how, I generally tend to look at things in terms of how we create social realities and who creates them. You know, there's this idea sometimes that reality just is. And that's partially true, but in the cultural realm, there's always someone developing it, uh, distributing it, who has more access to power. And those people generally are well-educated people who we hold up as exemplars of, of, of knowledge. And so they get a lot of power and they are deferred to uh, quite, quite readily. In fact, uh, these last three years we've seen constant appeals to, be, to defer to, to experts. But what happens if the experts are not guided by a moral vision or not even guided by a sound scientific vision, and yet we continue to demand deference to them. That to me is what a lot of what we've seen in these last few years, and it raises very troubling um, issues for me. It raises issues of trust. It raises issues of, of moral coherence on their part. You know, to whom much is given, much is expected. We're, we're delivering a lot of uh, our power into the hands of experts. And it seems there's a flipness with which they have used the power we've given them. Worse than flipness, there seems to be almost a perversion and a joy in making us obey and be compliant for compliance sake. And to me, this is very troubling in a society. You need, you need a, 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 an intellectual class or the credentialed class to have the reality of their status back up the title of their status. And it seems to me these two things have separated in these last few years, and that's really troubling to me. I want to qualify this. You're not, talk, you're not saying there's no objective reality, that all reality is subjective. We're talking about the fact that inherently there's always some sort of filter through which we see things, and perhaps we aspire to see things, that reality more clearly, but you can't see the entirety of it in perfection at any given point. This is one of the things that I've begun calling the crisis of literalism of sorts. That there's the idea out there, and who knows whether it comes from multiple choice tests or social media that says yes, no, thumbs up, thumbs down. 
The process of seeking the truth is always an open-ended one, which again, don't confuse, I won't confuse that with pure relativism, but it's one of always getting closer to the mark, knowing full well that you never arrive at the mark. So it's a, so it's a journey that is per se very complex and always partial. And it seems we're being told, no, there's truth that's easily known and easily, and certain people have it. And then there's untruth of other people who are said to not have it because these people who say they possess it have it. That's very dangerous uh, on many levels for a society that, that wants to be democratic. But it's also very dangerous on a, a cognitive level because it sends a, a very troubling message to a young person trying to negotiate the world. The world, it says that there's nothing I can trust in my own sensorial experience of life that can get me to the truth. I always need to be deferring to someone else and there's a simple packageable answer. Wow, uh, that, can, that is a great fountain of abuse. And I would even argue it's, it's a sort of bellwether of a generalized cognitive decline. One of the big words that we learned in graduate school back in the day, and you know, the, 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 you learn the jargon in the world of literature studies and, and cultural studies, was polysemic, that a given word is polysemic. Simply means it has various meanings and various levels of meanings. And that one of the things to become a good writer and a good observer and a good critic is that you have to be as aware as possible of all of the possible layers of meaning that a given word has. Poetry is about unleashing your mind with its polysemic understanding of words to look at something that tells you on one level a very literal story or not, and then being asked to employ what other hidden meanings are there. And it seems to me we're slipping away from the search for hidden meanings. And we're saying, well, what's the answer? Well, the answer might not be apparent yet. You might have to go through three readings to get to the answer. And you might have to go through a whole checklist of what word A, word B, or image A, or image B could be. And then you might have to collate them. And then you might have to think about it. And you still might not be at the definitive answer, but you're on the path toward a definitive answer. That's the process of dealing with the complexity of the world as I see it. And it seems to me the message we're getting is no. There's no, there's these people who have truth, defer to them. And there's you who have the need to just shut up and, and do what you're told. Well, and what's really interesting about what you're talking about is there is this strong push towards an identitarian vision of the world. So if you are a certain type of person, you have access to the truth. It doesn't matter whether you actually have that access or what you're thinking, but it's your identity um, according to you know, some of these popular ideologies today that, that gives you that access. It's right? rife with contradictions, however. I mean, on one hand, I can go along with the idea that identities are constructed. And that's kind of where we got to all this identitarian things, that they're constructed. That used to be a general, one of the big breakthroughs was that, well, identity isn't necessarily uh, always just there. It's constructed. Now we've gone 180 degrees in the other direction. 
identity is now seen as essential and, and clouding out of all other parts of your being. Identity is always multi-layered, polysemic, if you want to use the term again. It's always multi-layered and complex, and you have a number of identities that are always in dancing within you. But now we're saying, no, one particular trait, skin color, sexual preference, or sexual uh, performance, or whatever you want to call it, however you want to define it, that is essential. And that essential, uh, that immutable essential thing needs to be respected and it has a whole series of implied demands that go with it. We see these demands to be uh, treated in a certain way. I mean, I think it gets to another big problem which is do you really have a right to be treated all the time the way you want to be treated? I don't know that I do. I know in some fantasy world I have that that um, need or desire. I would love that. But in a complex society, uh, tolerance is the best we can often get. And I don't know that we can demand that other people reify or affirm the, the thing that we've decided we are and that we then have to embrace uh, on command what you say you are. It's taking away your ability to interpret the world in a certain sense. And that's the, one of the ultimate freedoms we have. I mean, this is a sort of cognitive brutalism. Yeah. For lack of a better term, this is what comes to yeah. mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a great term. Uh, it's a dumbing down. Uh, it's, it's, it's a flattening out. It's a decoloring of the world. You can use all the metaphors you want. But it's one of the things, when I think of the decoloring, what do we think, you know, the, the images we were shown of, of, of regimes during communism of, of decolored places, you know? Uh, and then I finally went to Poland in, during communism. I found, of course, there was color there. And the, the, but it was different key. But the life was flattened out in the public space because of fear, because of the ideas that uh, you might say something wrong. And it seems, and I'm not trying to say we're in communism or necessarily going toward it, but there is a, there seems to be um, a prescriptiveness that leads to a tamping down on many of the joys of life. <laughs> and it seems to be inducing a sort of sullenness. I mean, what's the joy of talking to someone? To try out things, to spar friend, in a friendly way, to do so in the context of trust, to do so in a way that's um, playful. And play is often imperfect. But what if you're told that if you're being playful and you happen to go over a line with someone else, terrible things can happen to you just on the, on the level of, of a verbal exclamation. That's, that is inhibiting people in their most basic sense. And it seems a lot of people want us to become comfortable with that. The process of knowing the world is being mediated. Of course, we're always mediated. There's no such thing as the virgin gaze. But it's the question of how much mediation, how much real experiences are we having? I mean, the real experience of friendship and dialogue is to let it rip and to enjoy it within the fewest, at least for me, the fewest number of inhibitions at that particular moment. And now we're being told, and it seems young people are, have almost internalized the idea that 
one should always be on guard. One should, because something could go wrong. You could say something that someone might not like. This is tremendously inhibiting. And it really, it really stops the process of exploration in terms of the building of an identity. Well, and you know, you mentioned there's some sort of similarities with communist reality, right? And I, this is something I often mention, the film, The Lives of Others to People from Wonderful years ago, film. because it offered a window into what it would be like cognitively. What, what, it, what is it like to live in a society where, like you said just now, you have to be on your guard constantly, because if you say the wrong thing, you know, you're, you're go, you could go to jail, or worse. And that's just life, yep. right? And, of course, that goes along with censorship. Censorship is the, is the cudgel that's out there. Censorship and cancellation are the two cudgels that, that, that are being used against us. And I think it's absolutely remarkable uh, how easily we've gone from free speech to how can I make my way around the censorship that's here. Uh, and we seem to have skipped over the outrage phase, which might have led us to a more vigorous protection. Now granted, a lot of boiling frog type dynamics were built into the censorship regime. But if you've been looking for the last 20 years at, at our press, and I always mark it in the 90s, but uh, that September 11th, after September 11th, brought a quantum leap in this need to marshal people into categories and to prohibit certain things uh, and certain words and certain positions from entering into the public sphere. Uh, I'm always reminded of when Susan Sontag, one of the great American intellectuals, wrote uh, in 2001, having some questions about the way the new war on terror was being uh, pursued. She was hooted down. And I think what we're beginning to see is a lot of this hooting down is not as spontaneous as many of us would like to believe. That there, the recent Twitter files, the uh, case that uh, the attorney generals of Missouri and uh, Louisiana are, 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 are trying now, uh, I think we're finding out that this was anything but spontaneous that there were a number of government actors working in concert with private actors to achieve a censorship that, frankly, for those of us of a certain age, is, is unimaginable. You know, you used to be able to say, well, I got the First Amendment. Uh, screw, screw you, you know. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Uh, and we've gone from that to I've got to be on guard because someone's always watching me. And we went fairly quickly down this, this hole. Uh, so it's very troubling. So this is well, part of the treason of the experts, I suppose. Yeah. Um, an expert, for me, and if you've been lucky enough to have a, a mentor in your life, what is, a, uh, what is a mentor? A mentor is someone who leads you along, who suggests, who looks at you and says, what skills... Do, does the, the, the younger person have that he's not aware of or she's not aware of? Does an inquiry into that person and suggests and leads along and then says, how can, implicitly saying, how can I help this younger person be the best version 
of him or herself as I see it. That to me is what an expert does. He, he doesn't or she doesn't impose a reality. They, he or she is very aware of the power they have, either through social, their, their social title, but more often their, their moral force. And they realize that it's a sacred sort of uh, thing that they have and that needs to be treated with the care that you treat treasures in your life and you don't abuse it. And you need to be very rigorous about to the extent that your own ego, to the extent we're, we're able to look into our and check some of our ego impulses. Am I using this power to satisfy my ego gratification more than I am to help the people I'm saying I'm helping? And it seems that that line has been crossed and there's a lot of ego gratification that is interfering with what should be a real sober um, taking of responsibility for a gift of power. I mean, power is a gift in a democratic society. It's not something you own and it's not something there to make people obey you. It's a gift you have that hopefully you can use in constructive ways that preserve the dignity of those who don't have as much power as you do. The term treason of the experts, I don't know if, I'm playing a little bit with history here with the title. It's from a famous book that was written by uh, Julian Banda or Benda uh, after the First World War. Uh, he was an intellectual and as you know the First World War was one of the great cataclysms in the history of the world. Violence as few people had ever seen and when you go back and study it you look at what the violence was about and the cynicism with which the violence was employed and people bidding their hundreds of thousands of troops to this side so that they could get another piece of land. It was open auctioning of soldiers to be fed into the machine. Um, and Ben uh, writes this book in 1926 or 1927 and it's called La Traition des Clercs, the clerks or the, 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 the clerisy, the treason of the clerisy. And of course what he's playing with is there is that in the world after 19, in the, the, the late 19th century, the church clerisy began to recede as an important um, uh, element in society to be superseded by the intellectual. And the independent intellectual made possible through newspapers, the publishing industry. And so the new clerisy, as he's suggesting, are the, the, the free intellectuals. And he suggests that the, the role of the free intellectual is to always be rigorous and to always place him or herself above the passions to the best extent they can and say, what's really going on here? And he writes a devastating critique in the mid-twenties in which he takes on both the French intellectuals and the German intellectuals. And he said they betrayed our trust. They acted as cheerleaders. They sent young men off to war to get destroyed, uh, became, became uh, cheerleaders of, 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 pro of, of gross propaganda. And he said, come on, we've got to reassume the responsibility that goes with, with having been granted a credential or a, 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 a moment in uh, a, a power. And to me, the first thing I thought about when this began three years ago was World War I.
this this being the COVID. the COVID the COVID triennial that we're in now. Uh, in March of 2020, and you'll see it in one of the, the, I think the first essay in the book, I'm saying, what's going on here? And my mind immediately went to World War I, that there were big forces that were pushing us in ways that didn't add up, and that there were hidden hands in places making us do things that simply were not able to be justified on the level of, of, of pure rational analysis. And I, I was very grateful that I had studied a bit of World War I, read a, a, a wonderful book. There's another book, when you see some of the madness, it's Stefan Zweig, who was a wonderful intellectual back in the time. And he talks about what happened in 1914. He thought he had, you know, 1914, he was from Vienna. He thought, we've reached the highest civilization that the world has ever seen. He was a Viennese Jew. His friends had been integrated into Viennese life. They were leading Viennese life in many ways. And then all of a sudden they're saying, aren't you want to go off to the, the trenches? Shouldn't you be going off to the trenches? Shouldn't you be excited? I'm going to go. Isn't it wonderful? And he began to say, what's going on in this world that I thought was civilized? And uh, I had the very same reaction in March of 2020. As we've been discussing this here, I keep thinking about you know, that this is being done for our own good, right? So this, it's not, there's nefarious forces at work who have their own agendas, who have their own egos, or, or whatever it is, but a lot of these folks, and I've encountered some of them, I think genuinely believe that they're, what I see as an incredibly dystopian vision of the world, is really the right thing to do, and it'll be good for me and good for you there's this line in, that I flagged in the, in the book, um, you know, ever more open disdain for the intelligence of the citizenry. There's a hubris here, and that's, that's particularly infuriating somehow, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, condescension, and I've always probably had a very thin skin for, for people condescending to me. I mean, one of the nice things that my parents did in general was they talked to us as sentient beings almost from the beginning. And it's one of the things I've sought to do with both my children and, and I, I'd like to thank my students. Uh, the idea that you need to dole it out, that if I told you, you might not understand. I'm coming from a place of complexity that you can't understand. You'll just have to trust me. Um, I think is very insulting to people and it's anti-democratic. <laughs> that. That, that's just the fact. The, the premise of democracy as we understand it as it was formed in this country in the late 18th century was that the farmer, the worker, and the lawyer were all citizens in the same measure. Now granted, there would be a natural pecking order that might, uh, pecking order in terms of certain skill sets that would emerge, but in the public space, no one was inherently better or in a place to tell someone else what they need to know and how they need to live. It's one of the great things about this country. Uh, and there seems to be now among this, what I call the credentialed class, there seems to be an attitude that says, yeah, I'll be polite to people. I'll be polite in a basic social sense. But in my heart, I know that that poor person really doesn't know what's good for him or herself.
After all, I have nice degrees. I went to the right schools. Um, you know, I've really thought a lot more about things than other people have. And that is very irksome to me, but it's something I feel and see around us. And I, you, you, if you watch carefully our credentialed elites, that oozes out of them. And I think it's incredibly paradoxical that those who knew better than us got everything wrong. And that it was often people who live in a more direct physical world who were using their inherent observational skills as to how dangerous this really was, who got it right for the most part and were able to look past the hysteria that seems to have been induced and get it right. And then the smart people who were quite strident in telling us to get on or be declared an idiot got it wrong. <laughs> And I think that gets to a really interesting question as to how much our intellectual class has turned into a sort of self-referential hothouse where we all do each other's favors. We say, well, you're in the club now. You know, you have your degree. You're of the good people. I mean, you, you, you know what the good things are. You know what quality is. And how can we nudge these other people who obviously don't have inputs the way we do. What never comes up is that the world of inputs and the way of becoming intelligent in the world is, is multiple. And physic, physical learning to listen to your body and the whole series of experiences that you have is very important. You know, Tom, I, I want to jump in because I think you just elucidated why our credential class is, in a lot of ways, easier to manipulate than the typical person on the ground or you know why it might be that the, it was the truckers that manifested in Canada and frankly you know I, I, I argue changed the world. In the, in the book there's an essay um, called The Frightened Class. It's one in which I talk about this frightened class and the irony of the fact that the most privileged people in our society were the most frightened people in our society, or at least ostensibly were the most frightened. And the people that were benefiting most from this crisis were the ones who were most ostensibly frightened. I try and explain in the, in the, in the essay that it gets into a question of physicality. In other words, even when you used to go to college 20 and 30 years ago, there was the expectation that you would work a summer job that ne wouldn't necessarily be pointing toward the great thinker you were going, the great doctor or lawyer you were going to become or thought you were going to become. And you were out there uh, working as an, a mason's assistant in the hot sun. And yes, was it a brief thing? Did the, you know you were going back to school in the fall? Yes. But it also opened your eyes to other ways of living and talking with real human beings who just have different intelligences built out of different experiences. And somewhere along the line, and Christopher, La uh, Christopher Lash, I, I always like to bring up, he, I think he's called it the rebellion of the elites, in which there was a taking off. You didn't work in, in a hard job during the summer any longer. You got an internship at an investment office. And so 
all year round, you were at your college, and then you went to the investment office, and then you were at your college. And in the meantime, you didn't have uh, experience with other ways that people have to earn their living and what it means to earn livings in, in, in different ways. And so, if nothing else, their empathetic imagination, it's a term I love. In other words, imagination is the only way we can empathize. We need to have a vision of what that person is going through and to do so with, a, with an eye of their dignity and that they're inherently the same as us, they're having a different experience, but wow, how much tougher it might be, how much more difficult their lives might be, and to bring back and reflect on that. And at least in some way, that, would see, that seemed for many years to mitigate this tendency to declare oneself all-knowing and all-seeing and to begin this, to create these hothouse environments where you hire your friends with the same credentials uh, and, and create, let's face it, bastions of groupthink in which going against the guide of what the supposed top dog thinks uh, is, 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 is very seldom uh, seen as a good thing. So uh, I, I think we've created cells of groupthink that are based in, in the socializa socialization of our educational system to a large degree. Think of the desperation with which parents of a certain, I guess it would be my generation of parents, began obsessing about getting their children into school A, school B, school... I mean, there was a time, and we could talk about the different explanations for it, where you said, well, go where you can go, learn things, see what happens, and ultimately it comes down to your ability to perform as a thoughtful or effective person in the world. That's the, that's the compact that I remember, uh, which isn't to say there wasn't some people who wanted to go to Harvard and someone wanted to go to the state college in my, in my town. But there was the idea that, well, we're all going to take a path and we'll find a way. All of a sudden it became, no, if you're not going to Harvard, you're missing out. And then the question becomes, why this desperation? And I think a lot of it has to do with decline as a culture in terms of the decline of a, of, you know, empires decline. Empires begin to produce parasitical classes at their end point. The Spanish Empire did so. And, you know, I want my child to get on the train because I know the train might not stop again. So that may be one of the, the in all fairness, one of the things. As when I was graduating from high school in 1978, there was the idea, yeah, you're going to get a, you can go to college, you can get a job, one way or the other. And maybe that desperation of seeing that, well, there's some people who get money and some people who are never going to get it, began to induce a desperation, which in turn induced a, a sort of fetishes, a, a uber fetishization of the college degree, which in turn created this sense of being all-seeing. Look at, I mean, after all, we, we got, went through the competition, we got into Harvard. Who could be, who could really be our rival? One of the themes that really comes out in the book for me, you seem to have a deep concern with the dehumanization of people, you know, based on identity, um, based on medical status, which I suppose is, is, is the same. And this seems to have become 
it, it's just not something that I've really wholly expected in this society. And I probably were on the same boat yeah. here. But somehow, it manif we saw it, it manifested. And you know, even at the highest echelons of power, people felt comfortable to dehumanize others. Yes. This is, I think you're right, at the, at the basis of so much of what I, I, I write about. And it gets into very fundamental, what I would argue are fundamental issues. Because you, if you're talking about dehumanization, you have to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? And then it begs you to go into the history of what it has meant to be human and what people have said mean, it means to be human and how we humans are different and how we flourish and what, when do we feel we are flourishing. And there's a word that I always tag along with it is dignity, a very difficult word to, to define, but one that when you say it, and you reflect upon it, a person knows whether they felt uh, they're in a state of dignity vis-a-vis -vis the world. And I agree with what you said. So much of it seems to be, there seems to be a flippancy about the dignity of others. Oh, vaccine injured people. Oh, well, we'll, we'll censor them, keep them out of the limelight. But what about the suffering they're going through? What about the people who lost jobs on what turned out to be a vaccine that couldn't have any social function because it didn't stop uh, infection? And this was known. Where, how, where's the dignity in, in the people that had to suffer from that? And where's the apology to those that, that had to suffer on the basis of this know-it-allism that turned out to be completely wrong. It's, it's amazing to me. If nothing else, for your own, one would think, your own moral sanity, you'd feel a need to, to, to repair, or at least say that I was wrong, or we were wrong, and we got things wrong. But what's so striking to me is it's, it seems to be that it's doubled down. We're not gonna talk about it. We're gonna pretend it didn't happen. On we go. Oh yeah, there was a few things that happened then, but we're not going to talk about that. But I don't think this is new in American culture. Uh, and this is something I, I've written about recently. We have been trained to become good forgetters. Um, whatever you think about the wars initially in the Middle East, the facts are pretty clear. We destroyed a country called Iraq for no terribly good reason. We largely destroyed Libya for no good reason that at least publicly has been divulged. I think there may be private reasons why, and I think in the case of Iraq as well. And you could argue in Syria as well, depending on how you look at the insurgent groups in, in that place. Have we had a national conversation about the destruction that we inflicted upon the Iraqi people and then kind of just said, oh, well, sorry didn't work, bye. And so if you can do that, what's a few vaccine injured people? <laughs> if, if, you, if you can go in on false pretenses, destroy a country, lead to the destruction of one of the most ancient cultures on earth, and then pretend it was a mistake and make a few 
light words, maybe at the highest levels, and say, oh, it was a mistake. Well, we didn't have those weapons after all. Oh, well, dead Iraqis, destroyed country. So that's and, get and, and dead Americans. And dead Americans who right. were put up to this task on false pretenses. And so you begin to ask, have, and this is where I go back and forth, were we ever able to atone? Was atonement ever a part of public life? Um, or was it always this way? And I guess I wanted to believe and have wanted to believe in my life that atonement is possible even in public life. You know, we have these atonements 75 years later to the Japanese who were interned, or we have the atonement for the, the bomb in, in Japan 75 years later. That's the easy stuff. How about the, the, the duty of repair to all who were, who were uh, brought into these things and whose lives were, were shattered on false pretenses? This is, this is serious stuff. And what I don't understand is how the elite class that made this happen through the collaboration of our media and government think they're going to put the rage, the subterranean rage, if you want to call it, that is clearly out there, do they think that they can suppress it into non-existence? Um, and it seems they think they can. Uh, it seems that they think with just perfecting censorship, which they call weeding out misinformation and disinformation, they can disappear these things. And they're getting frighteningly good at doing so. But people know, if they trust themselves, what has happened to them. And there we get to another question, is then power has to make people so that they don't trust what they see with their own eyes and feel in their own bodies. And this is what I talk about sometimes as a hyper-mediated experience in life. You try and divorce people from their primal understanding of the world and what has happened to them. Uh, you know, I, I, again, another book I've been reading is by an Italian psychiatrist, Casolari. She talks about the intelligence of desire. And it's this idea that if we get to know our desires and trust them, and then learn how to, learn how to ride them, so to speak, in a responsible way, we can begin to clear out a lot of the mediations that powerful people, a lot of the screens they want to put between us and what we know to be true. And I think that's a very important idea. How are we going to get back to helping young people, above all, listen to or, or experience unmediated things without a screen, without uh, someone telling them what the correct thing to think is before they've even had a chance to explore uh, what is, whatever the issue is at hand. And it's really a hard problem. How do we get back to that? You know, nature, I've never been a nature freak, but I find myself more and more drawn to nature. I've always loved it, but I, these last three years, nature has, I've made an effort to listen to nature because you can have a more unmediated experience. And then I come back to the more mediated world, it seems with a clarified mind, and I'm more able to tease out what is, what is real or semi, what is verging on direct experience and what is not. And then it becomes a sort of game you play and say, how can I get back to direct experience? How can I taste this glass of wine 
as if it's the first glass of wine I've ever tasted? How can I look at the sunset as if it's the first time I've ever seen the beauty of light and thought about the immensity of where that light is coming from? Uh, all of these, I know it sounds, for some people, it probably sounds pie in the sky, and I was never necessarily this type of person, but I find myself being drawn to it because I feel the encroachments of this hypermediaization of, our, of what used to be fairly direct experiences. It's interesting because this is, there's this relationship between this mediation and censorship. Absolutely. Because there's a choice being made about what is being presented, what isn't, what's being filtered. And then, you know, through, you mentioned the Twitter files, it's not just censorship we're talking about. We're talking about a, shape, a shaping of a whole reality. Exactly. And for, you know, there's swaths of people, for example, you know, this, this credential class, the experts, that actually many of them, or some portion of that, them at least, believe in this certain reality which we learned over time is kind of an unreality those of us who are more skeptical right at the beginning and that's i mean it's just a profoundly difficult i don't know miasma of concepts to to, to deal with for me right frankly because we have all these different competing attempts whether it's through consumer culture whether it's through to tell us what we need to think about particular things so we consume them, so we buy them, so we believe them, so we comply, so we, you know, while thinking that we're all doing it authentically, right? And then meanwhile, you know, there's this incredible amount of information being thrown at us constantly like we've never seen. And there isn't that time to sit down and reflect on what is the meaning of this, really. Is this you know, particular interpretation reasonable, right? And then, you know, and you, if you go on this journey, right, and through, through skepticism, you realize that all sorts of shibboleths turn out to be shibboleths, exactly. not reality, right? It's, it's a sort of, to, to turn a phrase, a commandeering of our desires, a commandeering on the part of interested parties of desires that are that should be genuine and that should be springing from a place of genuineness um, inside us. And it, how do you get back to listening to that and then sorting out all of the attempts to channel that energy toward ends that benefit powerful people? And, and then it becomes even more challenging if you're not even aware that the process is going on. And that's when it becomes really frightening. Will enough censorship, and I refuse to use the term misinformation and disinformation, which are, are, are just ways of covering up censorship, how if they're able to censor enough so that a person growing up never uh, or has very few experiences of direct uh, sensory and intellectual engagement with the world, what will, will, will the memory of that sort of behavior continue? Will it be there to access at a later time? Um, misinformation and disinformation, I, I've been going at this. When the, when the term came out in about two, six, 2016, I said, what the heck is this? And it gets us back to where we began this conversation in some ways. It presumes a single meaning for every given statement. 
In other words, the existence of misinformation presumes the existence of pure information, unambiguously understood. Well, no information is ever unambiguously understood, simply because of the human incapacity to see it in various people seeing it in exactly the same way. We're different. The idea of misinformation, I think, uh, uh, saying is it depends on a very primitive idea of information. Uh, so, and the fact that it, they could get so far by telling people without asking, without inviting them to engage in any inquiry of their own, that they could so successfully cast aside information not even giving people the chance to look into it or trying to censor the ability to look into it is simply amazing. All inquiry is, is torturous. All inquiry takes a path. And you go down one path and you see if it works. You go down another path. If it doesn't work, you go down the next path of interpretation. But it's about interpretation. And again, not endless uh, lack of truth, but knowing that the, the, the interpretive process is, is in and of itself, always complex. And that what may seem self-evident at one stage of the process of inquiry might turn out to be completely false later on. And yet you have someone intervening and saying, nope, definitively, that's nonsense. What kind of society other than an infantile one is that going to produce? That's, that's almost the equivalent, and, and this is, uh, I just wrote another piece called Infantilized Are Us. We've become infantilized, where we allow these experts to say, don't go near that, you know, like Toto in the, the don't go near that man behind the curtain because it might not be good for you. Huh? I'm an adult. I have a thinking, I have thinking capabilities. Do you? then why am I being asked by you to not even go near what is clearly a complex problem that I, and like many other people, have the ability to think through? Someone doesn't want us thinking things through if they're using these terms, these cudgels, I call them, of misinformation and disinformation. They're, don't go near the fire, child. Don't go near the busy street, child. And yet, so many of us accepted this and said, okay, okay, you've got credentials. You can warn me off. Thank you very much for warning me off because I might not have been able to handle it. What kind of citizenry is this? So, no, Tom, as we finish up here, I'll, I'll mention that this whole process of the last few years for me has made me much more of a free speech absolutist mm -hmm. than I was before, you know, there's just some certain things I find very reprehensible, Holocaust denial, as an example. In my mind, I thought, okay, you know, there's certain things that are just kind of beyond the pale. But then, you know, that means you're giving the power for that decision-making over to someone. And that, that's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> that's much more of an issue for me yeah. right now, right? So, but, at, again, at the same time, you know, and it may be misinformation. This is what I was thinking as you were talking. Misinformation, these temporary, these are weaponized words, obviously, right? Um, I often think a lot about communist China and the incredible amounts of weaponized information you know, they use to affect behavior, policy, here in incredibly destructive ways for this society.
right? And frankly, another failure of the experts, I might add. <laughs> um, but, but it's a reality that there's other powers at play which have incredibly malign intent. They've weaponized information, sometimes partially true, sometimes mostly false, doesn't matter. The point is to elicit particular responses. Absolutely. And as a society, we haven't known how to deal with that, right? right? And I, frankly, our credential class hasn't known how to deal with that. And maybe, you know, there's susceptibility to, to manipulation that we've been exploring. Maybe that's actually been a part of it, but we need to deal with that. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I am a free speech absolutist, I would, if I had to define myself. And I've been saying in various writings over the years, going back 15 or so, that this is one of the most heavily propagandized societies in the world. It's a very effective propaganda uh, system. Um, and so then the question becomes, and you've posed it very nicely, what do you do? Do you grow up and say, this is the world I'm living in, in which information warfare is constant, and therefore I'm going to have to develop some tools? Or do you say, well, that's hard. I'd have to really be on my toes. I'd have to engage parts of my brain I've never engaged before. Can an expert tell me what's the good information and what's the bad information? I understand that impulse. But what I don't understand is that people don't think through the implications of that impulse. Because when you outsource your critical faculties to other people, you're outsourcing power. And that power is not going to come back to you. You're not only outsourcing power, but you're outsourcing practice in skills that you need and that are going to atrophy through lack of exercise. So it can turn into a very vicious cycle. And I'm fully, I fully believe that we are under information warfare from many parts, including from our own government. I think one of the things that's self-evident in the last three years is that many of the information warfare techniques that were used on other people in our imperial missions have been brought home on the American people. And that's a very... Uh, threatening. That's a very disturbing idea. And the tendency to say, oh my gosh, is this really my country? I don't want to hear anything more about that. I can't deal with it. To think that my government is, is, is playing informational warfare upon me, a citizen. But it's the fact. It's the fact. And it's been, as, as Robert Malone said, we've been subject to industrial grade psychological operations from a combination of forces which include our own government. So then what are you going to do? <laughs> are you going to continue to defer to the very people who are, or people allied with the people who are carrying out information warfare to tell you what to think? Or are you going to break away and say, hey, I've got to get back to basics about how I collate, how I observe information? It's a lot of work, but democracy is a lot of work. And I don't see any way you can preserve democracy when large swaths of the population are outsourcing their critical faculties to supposed experts who have their own institutional interests and not necessarily your own at heart.
So we're at, a, we're at a turning point. We have to, at least those of us that have the time and energy to do so, we have to say, no, I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to swallow their mediated realities. I'm going to go back as much as I can possible to the source and make my own decisions. It, it also strikes me, though, that we have to you know, we, we have to have trust, right, somewhere, and we have to, you know, carefully create fellowships, you know, perhaps like the Brownstone Institute or my colleagues at the Epoch Times, because I can't, I can't go out and try to figure out every single thing. There's a reason I, you know, go to Harvey Risch for understanding certain elements of the science, because I can't go to first principles always, right? I agree with that in, in a practical sense. But maybe I should have said, you need to do source, you need to chase back your sources as best you can. Uh, you need to look at who, who are the power centers behind them. You know, these, these censoring organizations, you do a little bit of digging and you can find out exactly who's funding these, uh, these people that are telling us what's true and what's false. And they're very self-interested entities. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a good amendment to what I said. We, first principles would drown us all, perhaps. But we need to perhaps refine our, again, I'll go back to instincts, our trust instincts in what types of people uh, are, are, are trustworthy. I was talking to one of the colleagues here yesterday, and we were saying that, you know, if you get along in age and you observe people carefully, you can develop a certain, not, not infallible, way of understanding whether this person is rooted in a genuine, truthful approach to life or not. And th that takes instincts. Those instincts, unless you exercise them over the course of a lifetime, you're never going to develop them. We don't just look at... Words are only one part of the communication that we get from people. And I say that as someone who's learned other languages. And if I wasn't good at also looking at body and all other things, we. we we, uh, we, we, we need to keep those skills alive. And, and all the more reason to, you know, limit this sort of screen-mediated experience because that prevents us from being able to exercise those instincts. As, yeah, it flattens it out. It flattens out our human experiences. Well, Tom Harrington, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. It's been a delight, Jan. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Tom Harrington and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.